listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to the show. It's going on, mother effers. We are back on track with our normal schedule. Yeah, things are back to normal. Fell a little bit out of whack there for a couple of weeks. Yeah. uh, Due to partially things out of our control and, and also partial, I think we were just both a little bit burnt out, maybe. We went a little too hard with the three episodes a week thing. Yeah, the schedule was a bit... Um, <laughs> a bit hectic. Hectic, yeah. For two people who, you know, work full-time and have animals and other side hustles and attempted lives and fairly rigorous <laughs> fitness lives. schedule now as well. Yeah, also. We're, um, we're on, the, we're on, the, we're on a, a whole new schedule with fitness. We're killing it. We, as um, thanks to our personal trainer friend, Lucinda, who I think listens to the show, um, she works our asses off, and as well as that, um, I'm doing kickboxing lessons outside, and Laura's doing pole and pole ballet. Dancing. Yeah, and ballet now as well. And ballet. So you got one end of the spectrum. You got pole dancing, yeah. and then on the other end, you got ballet. Well, it's all the, about the, balance. The, the, the pole dancing of the French. It's all about. It's all- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a French man harder than a good ballet on a pole. On a pole. No offense to, to some any Mozart. French people. I don't know if we have anyone that listens to this. In if we France. do, um, I love you guys. You guys are cool, and we, we fully enjoy plan your to come and visit yeah, as 100%. well as soon as we're allowed out of the country. We're both obsessed. Welcome to Best of Cold, though. If you, this is your first time here, this is the Australian True Crime Show. We drink wine and we talk about crime. I am one of your co-hosts, Laura Elise, but you can call me Regina Falange. <laughs> nice. And I am Tama J. Please buy my new debu- debut book all about the presidential election called Biding My Time. Hey, boom. Speaking of, how relieved are we? The last time we recorded an episode, the election was still uncalled. Yeah, I mean, like, regardless of the... Um, still a bit of a mess. R- regardless of the... the the actual vote and and just the end, the the climactic ending of the whole election, it's just good that it's done, because having it linger over for year, like days and days and days was just so crazy. Yeah, it was. Know? It was. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would have been like to actually leave in the states. No, it's just such a extreme thing. Never been so grateful for Scott Morrison. Yeah, um, and on just on that quickly, I think we had a comment about. Something to do with Trump and alienated. yeah, someone was yeah. angry that we. It was so weird because we it was like, like a, it was something where we know. like we compared someone from the eighteen hundreds to Trump, and that was a bad thing. But they don't live in America and they also don't support Trump. Yeah, it was very. I was like, I was really struggling to find the thing there, and then they were angry that we were alienating half of our American audiences and. It was a very confusing review. Anyway, just, well, just quickly on. Like, I, sorry, I don't. I don't want to linger too much on it, but it's just kind of like we're not alienating anyone. It's just comparing a person to another person, and if we are alienating someone who devoutly supports that, it may say more about you as a person. Well, it's like you probably don't listen to our show anyway because we're not really that yeah. kind of people. You know, we're 
LGBT friendly and, you know, BIPOC. We friendly. swear a lot, which seems to piss a lot of people off. Yeah, it's just, it's Another- not really, we're not alienating anyone other than the people who wouldn't listen to this show or wouldn't listen yeah. to true crime podcasts in the first place. Do you know it's what just- I found really funny about the other um, review? Because we periodically check our reviews. I try not to do it too often because it's Depressing. really not great for my mental health, to no. be honest, as someone who has terrible anxiety. Um, but we got another review about swearing and I found this one particularly funny because the person who wrote it said that they thought it was put on and it's just like, oh, yeah. if only you knew how much more we actually swear in real life than <laughs> we do on this show. so bizarre to read because it's like, it feels so put on. It's like, bitch, do you fucking know us? <laughs> you have, have you no listened idea. to any show that we've done you have ever? No idea how Listen much Listen to the more. entire catalogue of our episodes before you we've say... We've had to censor ourselves for this we, show. Yes. I <laughs> said the C-bomb and we had to fucking... We lost the episode for it. Yeah, Tom accidentally dropped the C-bomb once and I told him he had to bleep it out. If you only So we knew. actually... And we try not to say it as much as we do in real life. We actually highly censor ourselves for this show. Yeah, so. I mean, this is a very <laughs> censored version of... I actually thought that was really funny. Someone was like, it's so put on. I'm like, if by doing it less, then yes, it is put on. Well, but, uh, the thing is, we don't really want it to be... Uh, I don't understand the, the concept of that, because the whole idea is we want to kind of censor the the show and have it more so be about the content and, like, our chemistry together rather yeah. than, like, a, you know, MAR18 show where it's, like, raunchy words and buzzwords about, you know, penis jokes and things like that. Like, it's such a weird anyway. thing to say because it's that, like, if <laughs> us outside of the show, we are this, we are sailors. Let's just yeah, say that. so much worse. Yeah. Anyway, um, how's your week been, Tama? Been pretty good. We, um, you know, we've just been in limbo with this whole election thing, just waiting for that to kind of come to a conclusion. And yeah, new it's just new job for me. New job for you. How's your week? How's that? How's that it's, been? New job. You know, week number two is a lot better. I feel like week number one is always super stressful because it's like not only are you trying to like make yourself you know, friendly and approachable to new people in a office environment, but you're also having to learn new skills and a new computer system and a new way of working. So it's all very stressful. It's also you, two, your first week you got paid this week. Yeah. So Laura's We're back on a wage. We're in the money. That was Fuck. like the nicest feeling after like yeah, a month of no wage. I can wage. imagine. That was very nice to get yeah. the notification from my bank being like, you've been paid. I was like, Fuck yeah, I have. Yeah. Anyway, so that was nice. I've also been nursing like fucking third degree burns on my face. (laughs) We went for a little ferry ride because I've not been on a wage. We've been trying to come up with like cheap little date days instead of like, you know, going out for dinner or lunch. So we have a really good ferry system in Sydney and it's pretty cheap to ride and you don't necessarily have to get off. So we just like bought ourselves, we went on Sunday morning, we bought ourselves coffee and donuts. We went and got a seat on the top like viewing deck and we just rode the ferry for like two hours and it was really lovely. Mm. But me being an idiot, because it was cold, like it was quite chilly on the water, I just didn't think that I needed sunblock. And my face is so burnt, like Sunday I... Sunday, Monday, I definitely had sunstroke. Yeah. Today, my, like, whole forehead is, like, 
peeling off in sheets. And that's the th- Laura has this thing where it doesn't initially show up bad. Like you would never know until like six hours later. And it's then like a bad at home. It looks tan. like you've been slapped in the face. It just gets darker and like, darker and darker. Like a sheet of skin has just like whacked you in the face. Yeah, it's really bad. And you've welted up. Anyway, Anyhow, my let's- forehead is blistering. And peeling, and it's a good time. It's a great but, time. But uh, I learned yeah. my lesson the hard way. I always forget about the damn hole in the ozone layer. Um, so just a quick thing. Um, thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Yes. Uh, and thank you to everyone who's bought a t-shirt so far. We really appreciate that. Yeah, I believe that the way the website we use this time around works, it works in like campaigns. So I believe if you purchased... One of the campaigns finished yesterday, so I believe your T-shirt should be printed and sent, and then the other campaigns, I think, finish in a week. So if you do still want to grab some merch, it is available. I'll leave the link in the show notes. I think it's really cool merch, if I do say so myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and for national listeners in Australia, we'll be setting up possibly something within um, a website Within Australia, that will we'll, we'll, we'll send things gonna, domestically. Yeah, we're gonna look at that. We'll look into that. Like that'll be that's on the the possibility it's thing. On the very endless yeah. long list of to dos. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Just to make it a bit easier. Yeah, I for think all that's all the um housekeeping. Yeah. Cool. Let's just jump right into week. it. So this week I'm doing a story I've actually already covered on the episode that was lost the lost to tapes. the MacBook gods forever. Mm. So. It's someone that I'd never actually heard of until, because a lot of the times, unless there's a case I specifically want to cover, sometimes I'll just like sort of deep dive into the internet to try and find someone I find interesting. And this is someone I'd never heard of before I stumbled across him. And he's described as the real life Buffalo Bill, and he was a heavy inspiration behind the character. John Douglas has described him as one of the most terrifying people he'd ever interviewed, This person doesn't technically fit the mold of a serial killer because the FBI defines it as someone who's murdered three or more people. Right. But today I'm talking about Gary Gary Michael Heidnick or the basement killer. So his murder victims were Deborah Dudley and Sandra Lindsay. However, he also imprisoned and tortured Josefina Riviera, Lisa Thomas, Jacqueline Askins and Agnes Adams. So Gary Michael Heidnick was born November 22nd, 1943 in Ohio. His parents were Michael and Ellen. And aside from his parents divorcing when he was three, his early life was pretty normal. After being raised by his mother for four years, him and his brother were moved to the custody of their father and his new wife. Heidnick has claimed that he was emotionally abused by his father who would force him to hang his urine-stained sheets up in his bedroom window for the neighbours to see as Heidnick had had a lifelong issue with bedwetting. Mm. Heidnick's brother has come out publicly supporting the story that their father was emotionally and physically abusive. Of the abuse, he said, quote, it got to the point where we'd be afraid to pick anything up because he'd beat us if we dropped something like a glass or something. That's the way to do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, not not exactly a good father. Great parenting. His father, though, has denied this many times publicly. Now, one thing worth noting is that when Gary was younger, and this is one of the interesting things that we've we've picked up and we talk about a lot. When Gary was younger when they still lived with their mother, Ellen, Gary fell roughly 20 feet out of a tree, injuring his head severely. 
So much so that kids at school would later call him football head due to the sort of shape deformity. Hmm. It's worth noting that his brother has been quoted as saying that it was after this event that Gary's personality began to change and he became much more violent. During his school years, he was incredibly bright with a rumored IQ of 130 to 148, depending on what source you read from. That's big. Yeah. He did, however, have some behavioral issues, allegedly refusing to make eye contact or mingle with other children at school. And at age 14, he was enrolled in a military school, which began his fairly extensive history with the military. Yeah, and check that off the scavenger list. Yeah, so we've got two. We've got head injury and military And bedwetting. That's the three. That's the trifecta. Yeah. Yeah. So after dropping out of a different school at age 17, he officially joined the U.S. Army. He served for just over a year and excelled in his basic training, after which he applied for specialist positions but was rejected, eventually being sent to train as a medic. Shortly after, he was transferred to a military hospital in West Germany, which is when he began complaining of dizzy spells, headaches and blurred vision, and where diagnoses of his severe mental health illnesses were first noticed. He was later transferred to another hospital back in the States where he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and honorably discharged from service with a full disability pension. After returning to the States, he tried and failed at many different part-time jobs up until 1971, including a hospital for a short amount of time. He was also in and out of psychiatric hospitals and allegedly attempted to commit suicide as many as 13 times. Oh, God. Yeah. His family members, Mother Ellen and Brother Terry, also struggled with mental health issues, with Heidnik's mother Ellen sadly committing suicide after being diagnosed with bone cancer, and Heidnik was aged 27 when this occurred. Another really odd thing about Gary is that at one point he incorporated the United Church of the Ministers of God and founded the Church of Heidnik as its ordained minister. Because of this, he received a $1,500 investment in a Merrill Lynch account and went on to make the church at least half a million dollars through this investment account. That's so bizarre. Yeah, from $1,500. That's so insane. Yeah. This dude's like, yeah, I'm my own religion, bro. Just give me money. And he had half a million dollars. Yeah, Church of Heidnik, man. That's so crazy. So, with this money that he'd made, he sold his house and purchased a three-story home and he rent out the top two floors. In 1978, Heidnik was dating and living with Anne Jeanette Davidson. At the time, her sister Alberta was in a mental institution and on one of her day release passes, Heidnik picked her up, took her back to a storage locker in his basement where he imprisoned, raped and tortured her. Alberta was later found alive, chained in his basement. He was arrested, however, his original sentence of three to seven years for this crime was appealed and he only served three years in a mental institution before being released. His first wife, Betty Disto, came over from the Philippines in 1985 after they corresponded by mail for over two years, having met through a, quote, matrimonial service. So I think, I don't know the politically correct way of saying it. I think it's like mail order bride, essentially. Mm. However, the marriage didn't last long with Heidnik's sadistic tendencies coming to the surface pretty quickly. After Betty caught Heidnik in bed with three other women, he allegedly beat her and forced her to participate, as well, in, as, well as forcing her to watch while he had sex with the other women. It's a healthy relationship. Yeah, I thought so. 
They eventually split in January 1986 after only four months of marriage and Betty returned to the Philippines. Ten months after his wife left him, Heidnik abducted Josephine Rivers on the 25th of November 1986. Josephina was the sex worker that Heidnik had previously had encounters with. However, on this occasion, he choked her until she was unconscious and dragged her to his basement where he severely beat her with a stick so she would stop screaming. He then digs a pit in the floor of his basement where Josephina would remain imprisoned. The top of the hole would be covered by a weighted board if she tried to escape or if Heidnik deigned that she'd misbehaved in any way, which is obviously where Buffalo Bill, the character from Silence of the Lambs, yeah, takes Yeah, that's inspiration. the heavy inspiration. Yeah. However, this wasn't enough as Heidnik had a desire to form a harem of sex slaves. And so on December 3rd, 1986, he abducted Sandra Lindsay, whom he had known previously, having actually impregnated her. Sandra had had an abortion which had thoroughly angered Heidnik, and it's possible that this was his way of, you know, enacting his revenge. Okay. He would feed the women, but he would keep them naked, raping them repeatedly. Just 20 days after Sandra's abduction, Heidnik brings Lisa Thomas to his home, giving her drugged wine and then dragging her to the basement with Sandra and Josephina. About 10 days after he abducts her, Deborah Dudley, who was one of the women who fought back more frequently and violently against Heidnik and as a result was punished more frequently, including longer periods of time being kept in the pit with the weighted lid closed. On January 18th, Jacqueline Askins is abducted and also forced into the basement. At this point, Heidnik's torture becomes more violent, forcing the women to have sex with each other as well as making them eat dog food. The latter of which was allegedly brought on by one of the women commenting on a TV ad for dog food saying it looked good enough to eat because he did occasionally let them come upstairs to watch television in his living room as sort of a, a, a reward. reward system. Yeah. yeah. If you'd caught that. Yeah. The women between being raped were occasionally allowed supervised visits upstairs to watch television, but were fed only once a day. So they would have just constantly been starving. On the 7th of February, Lindsay does something to anger Heidnik, which results in him hanging her by her wrists from the roof beams for two days. During this torture, she develops a high fever and sadly passes away the following morning. Heidnik takes her body upstairs and dismembers it with a power saw, putting her head in a cooking pot and cutting off parts of her flesh, which he cooks. Her legs and arms he wraps and puts in the freezer, labeling the bags as dog food. He feeds some of it to his dogs and he forces the women downstairs to consume some of the rest. Due to the smell of the cooking flesh and decaying corpse, neighbours call the police who come to inspect Heidnik's property. When police question the horrendous odour, however, Heidnik explains it away as a burnt roast and the police question him no further. He also fostered an environment of fear by making the women tell on each other. Josephina at one point has basically risen to the position of Heidnik's favourite, she tells him that the women plan to ambush him and escape, and as a result, he inserts screwdrivers into their ears to rupture their eardrums in an attempt to stop them from talking oh, to each other. God, that's terrible. Yeah, I, it makes me... It's one of those, uh, like, goosebump things. Yeah. Josephina is spared this torture, however, and is also allowed small privileges by Heidnik, including going upstairs to watch full-length movies. Heidnik coerces her into participating in the torture of the other captive women. 
On March 19, 1987, Heidnik's last victim, Deborah Dudley, also does something unspecific to spark his rage, at which point he throws Deborah and some of the other women, which whose names I couldn't find because depending on what article you read, this part of the story is told slightly differently. So he throws a woman into the pit and chains them uh, by their necks and orders the other women to fill the pit with water up to their necks. He then applies an electric current via a stripped extension cord to their wet chains and Deborah is tragically electrocuted to death. Allegedly, when Josephina reports that Deborah is floating face down in the water, Heidnik responds with, now I can get back to having a peaceful basement. Oh, God. After Deborah's death, Heidnik works to find her replacement, taking Josephina with him for this awful act. It's on March 23rd, 1987, when they abduct Agnes Adams. The following day, due to her heightened status in the house, Josephina convinced Heidnik to let her leave to visit her family, on the proviso she will come straight back and meet him at the gas station he drops her off at. However, she walks about a block away from where he drops her and immediately calls 911. The officers who meet her note the ligature marks on her legs and go to the station where Heidnik is waiting for her return and arrest him. At his trial, Heidnik hires Charles Peruto Jr., who attempts to plead non-guilty by reason of insanity. Heidnik also tries to argue that the women were in the basement when he moved in. (laughs) Yeah, no. I just don't know. It's not a solid defense, is it? Even if that were true, it's still real fucked up that you didn't call the police when you found there were women trained in your basement. It's like, I'm not too sure of the rules and regulations in this state. I don't know if that's like part of the property thing. Do I talk to Strata about that? Yeah. Do I like call my real estate? Like, hi, there's like four kidnapped women in my basement. What do I do? And the guy's like, okay, police are over right now. You're like, oh shit. Yeah. So his lawyer does try and argue, as I said, insanity. However, due to the wealth that he's amassed through his stocks and testimonies from his broker at Merrill Lynch... They prove that he's sane and competent enough to be found guilty. Shortly after picking him up, they raided Heidnik's home and they found as many as 27 body parts in his freezer. Oh, God. On July 3rd, 1999, after two long years of legal proceedings, Gary Heidnik is found guilty and sentenced to death by lethal injection. While awaiting his execution, he attempted to commit suicide by overdosing but was unsuccessful. After his conviction, members of the church he founded continued to host services in the home where the women were held and tortured, which is just, I don't, I have no words. A, a weird, have, bizarre yeah. thing to just continue yeah. to do. Like, it, there's so many wrong reasons so many to do that. Wrong with that. So, of his interview with Heidnik, FBI profiler John Douglas said that he is one that haunts him till today. Quote, he was even worse than the guy Buffalo Bill in the movie Silence of the Lambs. He would fill the pit up with water and not drown, but have them stand in the water up to their necks and then get electric wire and torture them while they were in the water. What made it even worse was after he killed them, he would then put the victims in a meat grinder and feed them to the other victims. He was definitely shocking, end quote. Yeah, that's a, that's one way to put it, Dougie. And that is Gary Heidnick. In a nutshell. A.K.A. The Basement Killer, a.k.a. the main source of inspiration behind Buffalo Bill. Mm. The pit thing really gets to me. That, like, feeling of claustrophobia as well as the whole 
water torture thing of drowning. Yeah. <clears throat> like constantly surrounded by water and also in a dark, dingy pit and having the lid closed on you, that's some cold shit. Yeah, that's my worst nightmare. That's some cold shit. My actual worst <clears throat> nightmare. It was interesting that um, when his mother commits suicide due to the, the bone cancer um, that she develops, at, at, and it was around the age that he was 27 and it apparently affected him really badly, it was very interesting that to me because it and the fact that he held victims with him and never let them go mm. he kept them with him and didn't want them to leave but it was different to like um let's say Jeffrey Dahmer or um or what's that um the Nielsen Dennis Nielsen yeah it does <clears throat> um different to them where it's more so the bodies not leaving him he doesn't want mm. them to leave because of that he he's keeping them alive and keeping them with him and doesn't want them to leave and um in some cases kill them kills them from acts of rage yeah not so much to kill them just cuz he loses his control control electrocutes someone after torturing them too much or you know something of the sort yeah I, I don't know that connection to his mother taking her life and leaving him forever was kind of interesting to me there's a bit of a weird yeah, thing there. It's an interesting um, comparison. <clears throat> I'm sure there's some sort of analysis that Douglas did about it, but I don't remember necessarily reading that in um, Mindhunter. But well, that may have been after Mindhunter because I think that was when he was a bit later on in life. Okay, right, yeah, because I think Mindhunter was written in the 90s, so I'm not too sure. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. makes me want to watch. Um, Silence Silence of the Lambs Lambs now. Yeah, Yeah. weirdly it makes me want to do that as well. Yeah, if not just for the many, many, many quotable lines in that movie. Yeah, fantastic film. (laughs) (laughs) Such a gross noise. Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, we... we, we, Wow. Wow, wow, we... too many W's. My mouth stopped working. We're going to take a quick break to... um, we're going to hear from our sponsor from our for sponsor this week's this episode, week. and then we'll be back. Laura, we got a bit of a dilemma here. What's going on? So, with every week with these new cocktails we're making, it's without us making money off the show, it's kind of hard to justify making a new cocktail every single week. You True. Know? We do go through some spirits, and they can be expensive. Oh, yes. So, we need a solution of some sorts. and. Well, Tama, I may have the solution for you. Wow! Have you heard of Podcorn? I have not. So Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to all different sorts of sponsorship opportunities. You can do host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and much, much more. And the best part is, is there's no middleman. So you're basically in the driver's seat. You control the price that you want to put on your ads, what companies you want to work with, and everything else in between. I'm only just learning this now, but apparently you never give up any of your rights to your podcast and Podcorn is here to support you as a creator at every step and ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for your brands. And protection of your creative rights, especially on the internet, is something that all creatives have been worried about at some stage or another. The Marketplace mission is here to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how we and when we monetize. And... They'll keep us in cocktails week in, week out. Bruh, tequila's expensive. 
Especially the good kind. Especially the good kind. So thank you, PodCon, for supporting us and supporting podcasters of all shapes and sizes across the internet. You can learn more about PodCon by clicking the link that will be in the show notes. Thank you for sponsoring the show, PodCon. Big thank you to PodCon for sponsoring this week's episode. Yes, we love... Giving us some money to afford more alcohol because that's where our minds are at right now. Always. Always at that. All right. Well, this week I will be discussing a very interesting case, a very famous case, the Yorkshire Ripper. So we, I'm excited for this. We one. usually delve into a lot of um, American style um, murders and horror esque stories, and um, I thought it, this one would be interesting because it's completely different country. You know, taking a dip across the pond, the old pond. So the Yorkshire Ripper was. Actually named Peter William Sutcliffe, and he was born on the second of June, nineteen forty-six. He was an English serial killer, dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper. In nineteen eighty-one, Sutcliffe was convicted of murdering over thirty around sorry thirteen women and attacking seven others. He's serving twenty sentences of life imprisonment in Broadmoor Hospital. And after his conviction, um, Sutcliffe began using his mother's maiden name and became known as Peter William Coonan. A high court ruling rejected an appeal in 2010 and confirmed that he would serve a whole life tariff and would never be released from imprisonment. That's probably for the best. As he probably should be. Yeah. Sutcliffe was born in Bingley to a working class Catholic family in West Riding of Yorkshire, a son of John Sutcliffe and Kathleen Francis Sutcliffe. Reportedly, he was a loner in high school and he left at the age of 15 to take a series of different kind of, you know, low-end jobs, including um, two stints as a grave digger during the 1960s. Between November 1971 and 1973, Sutcliffe worked at the Factory of Bear Television Limited on the packaging line. He left when he was asked to go on the road as a traveling salesman, which, you know, I feel you, bro. I feel you there. Yeah. After leaving bed, he worked night shifts at the Britannia Works of Anderton International from April 1973. In February 1975, he took redundancy, which is kind of hey a, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a soft spot word here, used to pay off the gain and to use the payoff to gain a HGV license on the 4th of June, 1975, and began working as a driver for a tire firm on 29th of September of that year. On March 5th of March, 1976, he was dismissed for the theft of used tires, and he was unemployed until about October 1976 when he found another job as a HGV driver for the T&WH Clark Company on the Canal Road Industry Industrial Estate in Bradford. He report- frequently used prostitutes as a young man, and it's been speculated that a bad experience with one during which he was believed to have been conned out of money helped fuel his hatred towards women. See, this is the part I find interesting, the backstory, like finding out the little details that kind of come yeah. up later on. So he first met Sonia Smoozma and uh, that's a very hard word for me to pronounce because it's I think it's Czech and Ukrainian. Um, so please bear with me. 
on 14th of February 1967, and they married on the 10th of August 1974. His wife suffered several miscarriages, unfortunately, and over the following few years, the couple were subsequently informed that she would never be able to have children. Shortly after this, she resumed a teacher training course. When she completed the course in 1977 and began teaching, the couple used the salary from her job to buy their first house in Heaton, Bradford, where they moved on 26th of September 1977. And this is where they were still living at the time of Sutcliffe's subsequent arrest later on. Now, to go into the victims a little bit, as I mentioned before, Sutcliffe was convicted for murdering about 13 different victims. Uh... I I'll, I'll, I might list um you know them all. There's quite a few of them, and I don't want to take up too much time. Yeah. So I'll probably go into them a bit more and shake and not stirred. Now, we all I've we have read a few comments that everyone really likes the whole timeline format. So this one's going to be a bit more bit of a timeline, you know, okay. year by year format. Yeah. Because people really dig that, and um, I really dig doing them as well. So this is exactly what we're going to do. So, starting with 1969, going back a bit, this is when Sutcliffe committed committed his first assault on an older prostitute whom he had met while searching for the woman who had previously tricked him out of his money. He left his friend's minivan and walked up Paul's Road, Bradford, until he was out of sight. When he came back, he was out of breath as if he'd been running. He told his long-term friend, Trevor Birdshall, who was the driver of the vehicle that he was in to drive off quickly. Sutcliffe told, said that he had followed a prostitute into a garage and hit her over the head with a stoner's sock. According to his statement, Sutcliffe stated, quote, I got out of the car, went across the road and hit her. The force of the impact tore the toe off the sock and whatever was in it came out. I went back to, to the car and got in it. When the police visited his home the next day, they informed him that the woman, who bore no resemblance to the prostitute who had tricked him out of the £10, had noted down Birdsall's minivan vehicle registration plate. Sutcliffe admitted to them that he had hit her over the head, but claimed it was only with his hand. The police told him that he was, quote, very lucky as the prostitute didn't want anything more to do with the incident as she was known a known prostitute in the area and her common-law husband was serving a sentence for assault. So, you know, not exactly the kind of person who wants to be around the law too much. Mm. 1975. This is when Sutcliffe commits his second assault on the 9th of 5th of July, 1975 in Keeley. He attacks Anna... Uh, Rogusky, I believe that's again really hard name. It's one of those ones where it looks like you've headbutted the keyboard. Um, so you know, apologies there. Who was walking alone, striking her unconscious with a ball peen hammer and slashing her stomach with a knife. Jesus. Disturbed by a neighbor, he left without killing her. Um, the prostitute Anna survived the attack after a long, extensive intervention by medical um, personnel, but she was emotionally traumatized by this attack, as you would imagine. Yeah. Sutcliffe then attacked Olive Smelt in Halifax in August, employing the same kind of the signature as before. He attacked her from behind and used a knife to slash her, this time above her buttocks. 
Again, he was interrupted and he left his victim badly injured, but she was still alive. Like the previous victim, Smelt suffered emotional scars from the attack, including clinical depression. On August 27th, Sutcliffe attacked a 14-year-old lady called Tracy Brown in Silsden. He again struck her from behind, hit her in the head five times while she was walking in a country lane. Sutcliffe was not convicted of this attack, but confessed to it in 1992 after his arrest. The first victim to lose her life was Wilma McCann on the 30th of October. McCann was a mother of four from the Chapleton district of Leeds. Sutcliffe struck her twice with the hammer before stabbing her 15 times in the neck, chest and abdomen. Traces of semen were found on the back of her underwear and an extensive injury involving inquiry, sorry, involving 150 police officers and 11,000 interviews led to no evidence to find a culprit. One of the McCann's daughters committed suicide in December 2007, reportedly after suffering years of torment over her mother's death. Very tragic. In 1976, Sutcliffe committed his next murder in January 1976, where he stabbed Emily Jackson 51 times in Leeds. In dire financial straits, Jackson had been using the family van to exchange um, sexual acts for money, uh, which her family was shocked to later find out, and when neighbors revealed it to them after the murder. Sutcliffe hit her over the head with the hammer and then used a sharpened screwdriver to stab her in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Sutcliffe also stamped on her thigh, leaving behind an impression of his boot. Sutcliffe then attacked Marcella Claxton in Roundhay Park, Leeds on the 9th of May. Walking home from a party, she was given a lift by Sutcliffe. When she later got out of the car to go to the bathroom, Sutcliffe hit her from behind with a hammer. She was left alive but w- and was able to actually later testify against Sutcliffe in his trial. Thank God. Good girl. His next murder took place in February 1977. He attacked Irene Richardson, who was aged 28 at the time, another Chapleton prostitute in Roundhay Park, killing her with a series of hammer blows followed by post-mortem stabbing. Tire tracks left at the murder scene resulted in an enormous list of possible suspect vehicles, obviously nowhere near narrowing down the search. Two months later, he killed Patricia Atkinson, known as Tina, age 32. She was a Bradford prostitute and at her flat where police found a boot print on the bedclothes. Another two months, Sutcliffe committed another vicious murder in Chapleton. His victim this time was Jay McDonald, who was unfortunately aged 16 years of age. He was, she was not a prostitute, and in the public per- perception of her, her death showed that every woman so far had was a potential victim. Every woman going forward was a potential yeah. victim. So he's not just attacking prostitutes at this stage. Sutcliffe uh, assaulted Maureen Long, age 42, in Bradford, July. Interrupted during the assault, he left her for dead. A witness misidentified the make of his car. Over 300 police officers working the case amassed 12,500 statements and checked thousands of cars with zero results. Huge manhunt going on. Mm. Sutcliffe killed a Manchester prostitute next, a woman named Jean Jordan, who's aged 20, in October. Her body was missing for days. They couldn't find her, and eventually, after 10 days, they 
found her body, but it was obvious she'd been moved several days after the death. Yeah. The recovery of her handbag offered a piece of evidence. Sutcliffe had given the woman five pounds. The note was new and it was traced to the banks in Shipley and Bingley and from there the to the wages of about 8,000 local employees. Over three months, the police interviewed 5,000 men, including Sutcliffe, but did not connect him to the crime just yet. Huh. Sutcliffe had known the note could expose him, so he had returned to the body a week after the killing and, unable to find the handbag, had tried to remove Jordan's head with a broken pane of glass and a hacksaw. Oh, my God. He did this after hosting a family party at his home. So... You know, Jordan's body was discovered by a man named Bruce Jones, who later went on to play the part of Les Les Battersby in the long-running TV soap opera Coronation Street. Oh wow! Yeah, so a little tidbit there. Sutcliffe attacked another Leeds prostitute named Marilyn Moore, aged 25 in December. She survived and provided police with a description of her attacker. Tire tracks again were found at the scene, matching those from the earlier attacks. In 1978, moving on, um, despite all the evidence that sort of accumulated, the police withdrew their intensive search for the person who received the £5 in January 1978. Sutcliffe was interviewed about the £5 note, but no further investigations followed, and he would ultimately be contacted and disregarded by the Ripper Squad many more times, which is what they kind of Mm. call themselves. Yeah. Uh, in the month, in a, in that month, Sutcliffe killed again, attacking a Bradsford prostitute, Yvonne Pearson, aged twenty one. This time, hiding the body under a discarded sofa so that it was not found until March. He killed a Huddersfield prostitute named Helene Ritka, aged eighteen, in late January. Her body was uncovered for about uncovered for about three days later. After a two-month hiatus, and this is sort of kind of building up now, Sutcliffe killed again, attacking Vera Millwood, a 40-year-old woman in a car park of the Manchester mm-hmm. Royal Infirmary on the 16th of May. So he's sort of like escalating it. Yeah, it's becoming a lot more frequent throughout the years. Yeah. 1979, almost a year has passed before he strikes again, however. During this time, his mother dies. On April the 4th, 1979, he kills Josephine Whitaker, aged 19, a bank's bank clerk in Halifax. He assaults her on the town moor as she's walking home. Now, there's a few forensic clues that pop up, but start, despite this, the police officers were diverted for several months into a fruitless um, search for a man with a wearside accent who was pinned down to the Castletown area of Sunderland, following a hoax tape message taunting the superintendent, George Oldfield, who was leading the search at the time. Right. The same hoaxer had sent two letters to the police boasting of his crimes in 1978, signed... Jack the Ripper, and claimed a murder, that of 26-year-old Joan Harrison in Preston in November 1975. On the 20th of October 2005, John Humble, an unemployed alcoholic and longtime resident of the Fort Estate area of Sunderland, which is about a mile away from Castletown, Mm. was charged with attempting to um, pervert the course of justice in response to sending the hoax letters and tape and remanded in custody. 
On the 21st of March, 2006, he was sentenced to eight years in prison for perverting the course of justice, and it's expected that he will also be questioned in, in connection to the Harrison murder. Going back to Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe kills Barbara Leach, a Bradford student, in September, his 16th attack. Yet again, the murder of a woman who was not a prostitute alarmed the public and prompted the expensive um, an expensive publicity publicity campaign, which unfortunately pushed the whole Westside um, accent connection. Mm. Even with this false lead, Sutcliffe was again re-interviewed at least on two occasions in 1979, but despite matching several forensic clues and being on the list of just 300 names in connection with the five-pound note, he was again not strongly suspected. In total, Sutcliffe was interviewed by the police on nine separate occasions. Far out. Yeah, it's a lot. 1980, uh, in April, he was arrested for drunk driving. While awaiting trial on his, this charge, he kills two more women, Marguerite Walls, age 47, in August, and Jacqueline Hill, age 20, in November 8, 1980. Now, this is while he's waiting a trial for a fucking for drunk, drunken, driving. drunk driving charge. It's interesting to note also that he doesn't, he jumps around in age. Yeah, it, it's not necessarily, it, there's no. Um, you know, it has to be prostitutes. Mm. He's bold enough to venture out of the whole prostitute ring and also go from women who were 14, 16 to 40 years of age. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. He also attacks two other women who who fortunately survived the attack. Um, Upaja Bandara, aged 34, in Leeds, and Teresa Sykes, aged 16, in Huddersfield. Following the November murder... Um, one of the Suckler friends reported him to the police as a suspect. This information vanished into the enormous volumes that were already created amongst the um, the Ripper squad. This is where things kind of heat up a little bit. Okay. On the 2nd of January, 1981, Sutcliffe was stopped by the police with a 24-year-old prostitute named Olivia Rivers. In the driveway of a light trades house, Melbourne Avenue, Broomhill, Sheffield in South Yorkshire. A police check revealed the car was fitted with a false number plate and Sutcliffe was arrested for his offence and transferred to the Dewsbury Police Station in West Yorkshire. At Dewsbury, he was questioned in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper case as he matched so many of the physical characteristics already known. The next day, police returned to the scene of the arrest and discovered a knife, hammer, and rope that he had discarded when he briefly slipped away from the police after telling him he was, quote, busting for a pee. Sutcliffe had hidden a second knife in the toilet's um, cistern. What's that word? The Cistern. Cistern. Cool. Yeah. All right, man. Just want to make sure I get that. At the police station and when he was permitted to use the bathroom there. The police attained a search warrant for his home on Sixth Garden Lane in the Heaton district of Bradford and brought his wife in for questioning. When Sutcliffe was stripped of his clothing, the police station, he was wearing a V-neck sweater under his trousers. The sleeves had been pulled over his legs. Wait, and what? The, yeah. <laughs> so, that you, heard, you heard that right. A V-neck sweater under his trousers. The sleeves had been pulled over his legs... And the V-neck was exposing his genital area. Right. 
The front of the elbows were padded to protect his knees as presumably he knelt over his victim's corpses. That's dark. Yeah, very dark. I mean, this is all dark, but... Yeah. Um, the obvious sexual side of the outfit were, mm. you know, held, but it was not communicated to the public until the 2003 book, Wicked Beyond Belief, The Hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper, written by Michael Bilton. So no one knew about it until this book came out. After two days of intensive questioning on the afternoon of the 4th of January, 1981, Sutcliffe uh, suddenly declared that he was in fact the Ripper. Over the next day, Sutcliffe calmly described his many attacks. Weeks later, he claimed God had told him to murder the women. He displayed emotion only when telling of the murder of his youngest victim, Jay McDonald, and when he was questioned about the murder of Joan Harrison, he completely denied such murder. He was charged at Dewsbury on the 5th of January. After he, At his trial, sorry... Sutcliffe pleaded not guilty to 13 counts of murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Okay. The basis of his defense was, as I said before, his claim that he was the tool of God's will. Sutcliffe first claimed to have heard voices while working as a gravedigger that ultimately ordered him to kill prostitutes. Like straight out of a David Berkowitz handbook. Yep. He claimed that the voices originated from a headstone of a deceased Polish man, um, Bronzlaw Zabowski, and that the voices were that of God himself, or herself, whatever you want to call it. He pleaded. He also pleaded guilty to seven counts of attempted murder. The prosecution intended to accept Sutcliffe's plea for a four, um, after four psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. However, the trial judge, Mr. Justice Borham, demanded that an unusually detailed explanation of the prosecution reasoning. After two-hour representation by the Attorney General, Sir Michael Havers, a 90-minute lunch break and a further 40 minutes of legal discussion, he rejected the diminished responsibility plea and the expert testimonies of four psychiatrists, insisting that the case should be dealt with by the jury. A trial proper was set to commence on the 5th of May, 1981. The trial as a whole lasted about two weeks, and despite the efforts of the counsel James Chadwick's QC, Sutcliffe was found guilty of, of murder on all counts and sentenced to life imprisonment. The trial judge said that Sutcliffe was beyond redemption and that he hoped he would never be able to leave prison. He recommended a minimum term of 30 years to be served before parole is considered. The recommendation meant that Sutcliffe was unlikely to be freed until at least 2011 at the age of 65. On the 16th of July 2007, this sentence was extended to a full life term, meaning that Sutcliffe would never leave prison alive, barring any judicial developments on the contrary. That's what we like to hear. After his trial, Sutcliffe admitted to two further attacks to detectives. It was decided that at this time, the prosecution for those offences was not in the public interest and the West Yorkshire police have made it clear that the female victims wish to remain anonymous. Um, After his conviction, Sutcliffe decided to go by the name Peter Coonan, which was his late mother's maiden name. Sutcliffe began his sentence at HMP 
Barkhurst on the 22nd of May 1981, and despite being found sane in his trial, he was soon diagnosed as suffering from schizophrenia. Attempts to send him to a secure psychiatric unit um, were initially blocked, but during his time at Parkhurst, he was seriously assaulted for the first time. The attack was carried out by a man named James uh, Costello, a 35-year-old career criminal from Glasgow with several convictions for violence. On the 10th of January, 1983, he followed Sutcliffe into the recess of F2, the hospital wing at Parks' prison, and he plunged a broken coffee jar twice into the left side of Sutcliffe's face, creating four separate wounds requiring a total of 30 stitches. Ow. Yeah. Ow. Although, you know, very well Yeah, deserved. who fucking cares? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, in March, 1984, Sutcliffe was finally sent to the Broadmoor hospital under section 47 of the mental health act in 1983 his wife sonia obtained a separation from him in 1982 and a divorce in april 1994 on the 23rd of uh, february 1996 suckliffe was again attacked in a private room in the henley ward of broadmoor hospital this time by paul wilson a convicted robber who asked to borrow a videotape before attempting to strangle him with the cable from a pair of stereo headphones Two other convicted murderers, Kenneth Erskine, who is known as the Stockwell Strangler, and Jamie DeVitt, intervened upon hearing Sutcliffe's screams. So, you know, murderers murder looks after murder. stick together, apparently. Yeah. Super creepy. Uh, and, you know, Stockwell Strangler, we might get into that another time. Yeah. You know? uh, after an attack by a fellow inmate, Ian Kay, on the 10th of March, 1997, with a pen... Sutcliffe lost vision in his left eye and his right eye was severely damaged. Kay admitted that he tried to kill Sutcliffe and was ordered to be detained in a secure mental hospital without a time limit. Uh, In 2003, it was reported that Sutcliffe had developed diabetes and his father died in 2004 when later cremated. On the 17th of January 2005, Sutcliffe was allowed to visit Grange over Sands where the ashes were scattered. The decision to allow the temporary release was initiated by David Blunkett and later ratified by Charles Clark when he took over the role of the Home, home Secretary. Um, Sucker was accompanied by four members of the hospital staff and despite the passage of 25 years since the Ripper uh, murders, Sucker's visit was still the focus of, you know, tabloid yeah. headlines everywhere. Uh, on the 22nd of December 2007... Sutcliffe was attacked again, coming a bit of a pattern here, mm. uh, fellow by fellow inmate Patrick Sarita, who lunged at him with a metal cutlery knife. Sutcliffe flung himself backwards and the blade missed his right eye, instead stabbing him in the cheek. Uh, and then uh, later in 2009, the 17th of February, it was reported that Sutcliffe was, quote, fit to leave Broadmoor. Uh, if the Ministry of Justice agrees with the doctor's verdict, he will be sent to medium security secure unit where he could be allowed out on short release of rehabilitation. On the 23rd of March 2010, the Secretary of State for Justice then, Jack Straw, was questioned by Julie Kirkbride, Conservative MP for Brums, uh, Brumsgrove in the House of Commons. Kirkbride was seeking reassurance for one of the constituents, a victim of Sutcliffe, 
that he should remain in prison. Straw responded, stating that whilst the matter of Suckler's belief was, was a parole board matter, quote, that all evidence that I have seen on this case and its great deal suggests to me that there are no circumstances in which this man should be released. And I think I mostly can everyone can agree with that. Uh, and that's, you know, pretty much it. You know, he's, he's still in, uh, in prison, I believe. Hope he stays there. Um, you know, any further information we'll, we'll get into in um, Shaken Not Stirred. Shaken Not Stirred. Um, you know, this 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 case is just such a, a crazy case. And if you look at the guy, he kind of looks like um, like a Charles Manson-esque mm. kind of dude. Uh, I'm not too sure how to describe it, but um, yeah, he's still uh, in prison, I believe. Um, and... To this day, I think he's just <laughs> suffered many injuries in prison and just trying to live his life. That's um, a good one. Yeah. So, in, in Shaking Not Stirred, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things that, you know, I wanted to cover, but we'll leave it for the post-show just because they're like added e- extras and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. That's the Yorkshire Ripper. Very nice. Yeah. Very, you know, horrible and you know, terrible series of crimes. Yeah, I'd agree. That was not cool. Mm. And while we've been talking, the little kitten we've been has joined decided to cuddle up against us. the smallest member of the BSC team. Yeah, the youngest. She's come for a little cuddle. And the prettiest member of all the, of the team. Aw, Toffee's beautiful. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, well, that's it. Well that's done. The, that's the case. That I found it one. very interesting that he, you know, branched from... Victim to victim and wasn't a set yeah. victim, but the modus operandi was completely the same. It was mm, striking yeah. from behind and um, stabbing with sharp objects and very violent attacks. Like some victims over 40 stab wounds. Yeah, that's you know, nuts. Fucking crazy. <laughs> Little ones just curled She's up next to me. She's cuddled up. That's the cutest thing ever. Yeah, she likes it. Likes it like a nice warm leg. Um, yeah, well, like I said, we'll, we'll go into more stuff on Shaken Not Stirred. Yeah, that was a, that was a big one. That was a lot of information to take in. A lot of victims too, mm. unfortunately. It's and a lot very of, sad. Um, yeah. And a, a, a wide span of ages and, and, you know, some being prostitutes, most being prostitutes, but some nothing to do with prostitution. Crazy. Mm. Yeah, it's such a rare thing for someone to kind of like have a clear, you know, victim pull yeah. and then diverge out of it. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know if we've covered someone like that who's kind of jumps across ages like that. You can tell he got he grew more bold as the victims kind of grew because he went outside of the hole. Yeah, you know, sex worker. Yeah, yeah, and that's when everyone started freaking the fuck out because they were like... Which is so oh, sad. Oh, shit. You know, we, like, we he's going for people who aren't prostitutes now as well. Like, we're all screwed. Yeah, you should, like... Yeah, it's very sad that when it's people within the sex work community, like, police don't seem to care. Well, yeah, it's it's a mixture of things. It's that and, you know, the similarities between that and the, the, the Des case mm. where, like... You know, young homosexual men are disappearing and the police don't really give a fuck because yeah. they're gay. Um, 
it's a, it's a similar thing with prostitution in this early, you know, 1970, 1980s era. But also, these women are prostitutes with, you know, as I said, some of them having partners who are involved with crime and have been yeah. arrested on certain charges. And it's hard for them to get involved because then their criminal life or rather their life against working with the law comes up and it's they're yeah. now like, you know, in danger of being arrested themselves. Yeah, very true. And it's like, you know, if you're a prostitute and you've probably done some other illegal shit, you know, yeah. how the fuck are you going to be like, yeah, cops, check out my life and everything I do. Well, it's like how in the Kitty uh, Genovese case, people speculated that part of the reason why no one called the police was because being a homosexual back then was illegal. Yeah. And many of the people who lived in that apartment building were from, like, the queer community. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah. you don't trust the police already. So, it's like yeah, you many, don't want many different them into things. your home. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting um, scenario. Um, I just found it so interesting, too, that he just got fucking destroyed in prison. Yeah. Attacked, like, what, four times? Five times? I think it was, like, four or five times. Yeah. Gets to the point where you're kind of like, just let someone kill him. <laughs> I mean, that's very bad for the prison to to have that happen. Yeah, I guess. Um, Can't say I know that much about prisons. Yeah, it's very bad for Which them. Which I'm very grateful for. But yeah. I don't know much about prisons. I found it also crazy that they interviewed him nine times on separate occasions. Yeah. And like... I'd love to know if anyone else on the suspect list was interviewed that many times. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. It was just they interviewed him, but they never like looked at him and went, "Yeah, yeah they, he's definitely." I guess the, guy. the problem is, is that they need like hard evidence to arrest someone and be able to get search warrants and stuff. Yeah, it wasn't until they actually pulled him over and they were like, "Oh, this dude's got a fucking knife and rope." Yeah, <laughs> like, and he's stashed a knife in the uh, the 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 station, the police station's yeah. fucking lavatories, like. <laughs> yeah, not a smart move, my no, dude. No, very bad. If you, I mean. I don't want to give murderers any tips, but if if you're going to murder, don't stash your murder weapons. In the police station. In the police station. That's just kind of... Lesson one. That's just kind of like day one shit. Mm. You know, it's rookie, it's rookie numbers, bro. You fucking donkey. <laughs> um, well, I think this is part of the episode where we stop talking about murder and true crime and we, we go just... Off the rails. Go off the rails. So if you are someone who doesn't like to stick around till the end, thank you very much for joining us for another episode. You can check us out at the BSC podcast on all things social media and the link for our merch will be in the show notes. For those of you who would like to stick around, welcome to the end of the episode. Yeah, this is where we we lose our minds essentially. You know what I realized we stopped doing, which we should start doing again? What? what? We stopped talking about things we're grateful for. What are you grateful for this week, Tala? I'm grateful for our community of friends. In what way? That What do you mean? They're just if you ever need anything. Mm. Like our friends are very... Like, yeah, I got your back, man. Like, I'm Very there. Very true. You know, 
Um, Did something in particular happen that made no, you No, no, it's just, just like, you know, you want to hit up a friend and be like, dude, I'm just kind of like not having a good day. And they're like, oh, fuck, dude, well, no worries. Like, like yeah. give me a chat, call me up, hit me up, whatever. That's very true. Um, you know, and it works both ways. It's just a very, you know, positive thing to have that support network. Mm. Um, what about you? I'm really grateful for working again, to be honest. Like, it's nice to have a bit of structure back in my days to feel kind of like I have a bit more purpose because, you know, I have a a timetable to keep to. And also just the massive financial strain of not working is now gone, which is very nice. I'm I'm very grateful for that. You know what I'm also grateful for? What? That little peachy's uh, desexing scars have started to heal up a lot very nicely. Yeah, and her fur started growing back. She had to get a little fur patch shaved. It was interesting. I, apparently, they don't do it from the abdomen, they like the lower the tummy. Hind. They go through the the apparently side. It's easier when they're that little. Yeah, that was. I found that very interesting because, like, I thought she would have the scar on the and the stitches mm. on the bottom, her underbelly, but it's on like her thigh, kind of. Yeah. Um, she and she she had to get shaved. <laughs> she's, she's you say bit, little, but they shaved a massive chunk. No, no, off like the side of her. She's little, but um, she's got a lot of hair. Like she's very yeah. furry, fuzzy, um, like a peach. And they had to shave down like so much, like a huge patch of fur. So mm. she just had this little friggin' like ratty leg for a while, and it's starting to grow back now. And you she can just see you can leg. see the layers of all the different fur through it. It's really cute. Yeah. She's a good little leg. Yeah, I realized we we haven't done that for ages. We should make sure we keep doing it. Yeah, we should. I mean, you know, it's... It's a nice little, like... Years on my server. Like happy we're gonna, ending to yeah. the show. Years on my server. We're going into it with a bang, you know, this next year. Um, with a bang, not with a fizzle. I, I, I fucking swear to God, it feels just like we, we've, we've started this year. We started? <laughs> well, we did start this year. No, no. Like, I mean... No, I mean, like, this 2020, like, starting 2020. Oh, yeah, and it's nearly the end. Like, it's nearly the end of this year, and I swear to God, it was like, I, it wasn't that long ago that we were like, cool, 2020, bro, yeah. let's do it. But It's very true. This year's just disappeared. Like, this year has gone, like, so fast and so slow at the same time. Like, January, we were, like, talking about friggin' coronavirus being a weird thing that's happening. In yeah. February, and we're like, oh, it's getting a bit weird. And then by March, March. it was like, oh, yeah. God. Yeah, <laughs> like, I haven't done, we haven't done a, a Bore Millennials, like a like the, the actual show itself, since February. Just because mm. of all the shit that went down. Yeah. Like, it was intense. And that feels like it was not that long ago. Yeah, well, we started this show instead, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so crazy to me just to think that this year is nearly over. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. has happened in 2020. It will be one for the history books, that's for sure. God damn, will it? Will it ever? Yeah. Crazy. I hope 2021 is better. Yeah, fingers crossed. I wonder how, like, international travel is going to go. Yeah, I don't know. That's my biggest... Isn't it crazy, though? So, two of our friends got married and it feels like it was so long ago. Did you know that Joe and Lucinda only got married in January this year? It feels like it was so much longer ago. Well, yeah, that does feel long ago. 
Because they they weren't living here when they no yeah wow they were interesting in the United Kingdom yeah wow they got in just in time as well like literally they were, they were like one of the last flights yeah it's <laughs> stressful as hell oh yeah thank goodness um do you have anything in particular I feel like we're both so tired yeah this is like so we're again changing our not our posting schedule but our recording schedule. Well, we're going back to what we were. Yeah, yeah, Sunday, exactly. Because you said that you didn't like Sundays, but I think we've tried to do a day that's not Sunday and it's just not working. So yeah, we're going it's just not really working out too well. Um, and the the only time it really works during the week is doing um, recording the Shake and Not Stirred episode on Thursday and having it come out on Friday. Um, that That works because we have like, you know, so many days to sort of gauge everything and... It's after the main episode goes up and, you know, we have time to prepare for it. But, yeah, like, during the day, it's just, like, with we're working out, like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, you know, it's, it's just so intense and there's barely any time to come back and, like, shower and get ready. And then also waking up for work in the morning at, like, 6, 7, yeah. whatever it is. Currently 20 past 11 as we're recording this. Yeah, so... Um, and we both have to go to work tomorrow. We're boned, but so whatever. We yeah, do no. this for you. We do this for the people because yeah. we love you. It, it's And that's that, that also, just on the topic of baffling things, it's kind of crazy to me to think that, like, we record this and it's just us and it's, we're kind of detached from this whole idea that people are listening to this. But then you post it and it's like, oh, by the way, you've got like a thousand two hundred listens on this mm. or downloads on this episode. And it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> people are actually it's listening. Weird. It's very strange. Yeah. And it's nice, like the little community of people that we've kind of grown. Like there are a couple yeah. of people that I sort of get messages from nearly every week. And it's like really, I don't know, it feels like a little online family. Yeah. It's nice. It's, it's nice to know that we're all kind of like here for each other in this horrible year we've been having yeah when people like message us and we message back and they're like freak the fuck out that we message them back i'm like it's like it's just us yeah <laughs> i was like wow so we're at that stage i can promise you we are nothing special but yeah. we th- we feel very special that you think we're special yeah like i said before nice. i'm tama just okay jay yeah and laura everything is Something. <laughs> what? What? I don't know. Whoa. Okay. I'm so tired. Wow. That is a that is the sound of a brain just giving up on itself. Yeah, pretty much. That is, that is like the threads of your brain just like nope. I'm out. Yeah, it was like it was like watching the gears go and like something yeah. just like ticked loose. It was like just gives the fuck up at some point. It's like um, when you try and turn your computer on. It's like Windows is installing updates. Like I don't want you to install updates. Just turn on. I found it really weird that um, like I I, I, I checked out Chartable the other day and I saw all the wonderful reviews that were left by so many a lot of nice our listeners. Because I we don't get to see anything outside of Australian uh, reviews. So reviews coming from like people from America and and Europe and all the and all that. It, we don't really see it unless we go to Chartable and. It was crazy. Like I went to Charter and there was like there's dozens of reviews, and they're all 
from lovely super super lovely like, like most of them from american audiences and like half half american in australia um so it was really nice to see all those american reviews and you know we love you americans uh obviously you know you're you make up a huge chunk of our listener portion and it's nice to see the reviews finally um they were all very lively and a lot of inside jokes in there, which I love to see. Mm-hmm. That's like one of the most I mean. positive like things we've to made see. this like little community. I yeah. Love it. To see like inside jokes and all that, it's like, yeah, and we, it feels very, very good. Mm. And, you know, people giving us cases to check out. Like, I love that. That's really cool. Um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be doing cases that you guys recommend just because, you know, you've obviously want to check it, hear it. Yes, and I do have a list going of ones we've had recommended. Yeah, there, there's just so many cases that we need to get notes down for that it's like, whoa, okay. So, if you have requested something, odds are we will cover it um, sometime. It might know. take us a while to get there, but we yeah. will get there. With a show that's a weekly format, it's probably going to take a few weeks to get there. Um, you know, depending on what we find most interesting at the time. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, yeah, hit us up if you want us to cover anything. Six degrees of separation, of course. Um, you know, just let us know how your day's going. Yeah. If you feel like chatting, we're here. Send us a message. I love to chat. Ask for cat photos. I have lots. I will send you cat photos. Some would say too many. But no such thing. I don't think there's such a there thing exists. No thing we are the BSC podcast on all things social. If uh, you feel like shooting us an email, you can do so at bestservedcoldpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, we have links, excuse me, in the description. I've just, just started getting hiccups. This is a great end to the show. Would you like me to take over? Yeah, go for it. We will have links in our show notes for our Ko-Fi. You can send us a small once-off donation to help keep the lights on and our merch as well where you can buy some cool T-shirts, if I do say so myself. Mm -hmm. I designed them, so I'm a little biased, but I think they're pretty cool. Bing, bam, boom, bam. Uh, And just one last thing from me. We are working on streamlining a, like, maybe temporary or once off just to see how it goes. Um, we might do a actual live stream for Shaken Not Stirred sometime coming up. Mm-hmm. We're just like getting all the the logistics figured out see and everything. How it goes. Yeah, exactly. We we you know, yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll we're going to figure it out. Uh, if we do end up doing it, we'll post on our socials and we'll let you guys know, of course. Yes. And that'd be really cool to to try out. Yeah. But we'll keep you, yeah, we'll keep you posted before you yeah, decide exactly. to do it. Yeah, exactly. But thank you for tuning in. Make sure you check out Shake and Not Stirred on Friday in our main episodes every Wednesday. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.